Well, hello everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Those of you who are watching on video and were at All Saints Presbyterian Church on Sunday, October the 1st, will know very well who I have as my special guest this week. For those of you who are either just listening or who weren't with us at All Saints on the 1st of October, I'm here with Pastor Jan Prorok from the Czech Republic. Pastor Jan is a pastor in a Sirisi church in Karlovy Vary, which is a town on the west side of the Czech Republic, yep. about an hour from the German border. He and I have had a chance to get to know each other over the last year or so. Uh, we've done a podcast or two together. He preached for us yesterday, uh, and it really was a truly remarkable sermon. I'm going to embarrass you now. <laughs> but I, I, so many people remarked to me how uh, exciting, invigorating, reassuring, comforting they found it. It immediately prompted the thought in my mind that we should try and develop this thought even further because the contribution that you made to our understanding of the issue you addressed was so rich and deep. You gathered together so much material in order to make the case that it almost feels like th this is what our communion needs. This is actually what most, if not all, married couples will need at some point in their lives. And you gave it to us with such compassion. Uh, I was very glad that I didn't have to lead the rest of the service after your sermon, but that Pastor Shaw did, because I think I'd have been choking back the tears as I was at several points in the sermon. I know that dozens of other people were in the congregation. Because, Pastor Prok, you spoke about the uh, fate, if that's not the wrong word, of children mm -hmm. uh, who are conceived by believers, but who tragically die either in infancy or even before birth. Yes. And just remind us the passage you were speaking from and, and what happens in that passage of Scripture. Yeah, well, I started with the record that we have of David sinning with Bathsheba, then being confronted over mm. his sin. And then even though David prays and even though David fasts for his son to be spared, his son still dies. And I mentioned in this sermon, I invite you to listen to it. It shows us Christ. We see uh, the death of the son of David. And based on that, David is lifted up from his death, from his fasting. And he is washed and he's clothed and he's seated at mm. You can say God's table, which is a beautiful picture of Christ, but still this Christological uh, layer doesn't mm. take anything, anything from the fact that our little children do die. And it's something that we need to be able to work with scripturally. And I mentioned that we see David ha having confidence mm. in what happened to his son. David says, well, I'll no longer fast because I can't bring him back. But I'll go to him. And that's actually a comforting thought to David. So we see that even in David's sin, mm -hmm. he still has confidence based on God's covenant, based on God's promises, that he will see his son and that they will live together forever before God. Mm. There's a wonderful moving moment at the end of that episode in, uh, in David's life when uh, his servants are anxiously mm -hmm. concerned that David is going to harm himself yes. when he discovers his son has died. 
and David explains, well, he, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. Yes. And you know what struck me? And you, you preach for 45 minutes, and so there's so much you didn't say. And, and some of the mm-hmm. things we're going to talk about today are things that you didn't elaborate on. They're questions that were submitted by members of the congregation. But w- what we can't do is put David's response down to a kind of ungodly presumption. And one mm-hmm. of the reasons we know that is because when his son Absalom dies, having displayed during his life many, many uh, manifestations of unfaithfulness, David is shattered emotionally mm-hmm. and has no confidence of seeing his son after the resurrection. Yes. And he cries uh, like six, seven times in the space of three verses, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, because he is distraught over the death yeah. of Absalom. And the difference is with Absalom, he's seen evidence of this man's unbelief and unfaithfulness. Yes. With the unnamed son of Bathsheba, he has no such evidence. And so what's his assumption? Well, his assumption is grounded on the promises of God and the promises of God extend to the children of believers. And therefore he has as much confidence in his son's salvation as he has in his own. Yes. And it's a truly, or more. Or more. Yeah. In a sense, more because his son has now finished the race. Exactly. And it was a short race for him. And uh, so praise God. He, and you're the, the burden of your sermon in terms of the, the propositional content was to communicate that assurance mm-hmm. to people who've lost children. Yes. I really do want to urge you to go back and listen to the sermon again. If you've not, even if you have listened to it, but if you've not listened to it, uh, it will be linked in the show notes for this podcast. It's on the All Saints website, allsaintskirk.com. Just search under sermons, Second uh, of sorry, 1st of October, 2023 uh i don't even know what title it or the title it would have had on the order in the Conf- website confidence greater than david's confidence greater than david's so that's a, the title has that's been given to it um that you must have given to the guy doing the av yes. uh, which is fantastic good um and just you've got to go back and listen to that because the the comfort that uh, i experienced my, my wife and i lost our first child before ben was born uh really at a very early stage of pregnancy um, is about as untraumatic as um, an event like that could be. Uh, there were no medical complications that we knew of. It was just the emotional roller coaster of, of mm. that strange kind of bereavement. And that is a pain that so, so many people have experienced, uh, so many will experience in the future if they've not yet. And I cannot think of a better resource than your sermon to help people through that so be go and listen to the kindness and grace of God that um, Pastor Ian preached to us. Um, now, what we normally do after worship is, uh, if if we've not got something else on, like a baptism reception, uh, which is more or less the only thing that can shunt aside our post-service Q and A time, that or a fellowship meal. Uh, we normally have Q and A after the sermon in what we call forum. But in forum, we were just getting to know you and another guest, Pastor Kip Chellashaw. And so I said to everybody, look, if you've got questions, you've got to email me. And so we had a lot of emails. But what was interesting is the, the questions really narrowed down to three questions. And in the interests of trying to integrate what you said with a broader set of biblical considerations and touch on some of these pastoral concerns, I want to go through those questions and yes. I hear your thoughts and I'll, I'll bounce a few ideas off you. Yeah. So if you're ready, question one. <laughs> 
Question one was asked in several different ways by different people. Um, you talked about the children of believers. You did not talk explicitly about the children of unbelievers. And so what about the children of unbelievers? What about, for example, if you have a, a, a couple who lose a child and then they're both later converted, is is there something that about their later conversion that tracks back into their prehistory? Uh, what about um, somebody who may conceive a child out of wedlock um, with a believer or an unbeliever? Uh, but they're, they're certainly behaving like an unbeliever. They might themselves not profess faith at that point, but might come to do so later. There are lots of permutations of this. And, and there's also the question just that we will have friends who aren't Christians and aren't about to become Christians mm -hmm. who have tragedies similar to these. What could we say? What should we say about those, uh, that cluster of questions in your view? Yeah. Like a couple of books could be written just on the questions that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just like with many other topics in the scripture, you know, scripture doesn't give us simple and easy answers. It's mm. not like, you know, okay, you, you find the book, you find the verse, and then you have your answer. So with many questions scripturally, we are to consider very many principles. Mm. Uh, generally speaking, the first thing that we have to say, whether the child who died was of believers or of non-believers, we as Christians can say that's a tragedy. That's mm. something that shouldn't have happened in a way. We can say that death is an enemy. Mm. And that's in many ways the, the foundation that we need to begin from. At the same time, of course, an important fact in all of this is God's sovereignty. So we as Christians know that whatever happens comes from God's fatherly hand. And we, in a way, can't say this to the unbeliever because God, in this covenantal sense, is not their father. So if we are talking just to unbelievers, we can grieve with them and we should grieve with them, generally speaking, mm. but we have no easy answers and we don't really have much hope for them unless they repent because we as christians don't want to present hope that's out of christ that's outside mm. of christ mm -hmm. the only hope the only peace the only joy that we have is in christ mm. and of course christ is so good that he gives mm. some sort of consolation even to people who are outside of his covenant but we don't want to communicate to these people hey everything's gonna be fine there there's no such thing and i mentioned it in the sermon as salvation by death mm, yes so people are not cleansed from their sin and from their guilt by dying right right but by christ yes i guess my my thoughts are then so if if we don't have the the clear-cut covenantally grounded basis for hope mm -hmm. so that we're not able to offer a blanket concrete assurance exactly is there anything we can say and it's interesting in the history of protestantism even recognizing that that's a, a portion of the church's history mm -hmm. and reflection on this topic there have been some and spurgeon was quite well known example yes. who have said that they believe that all children who die in infancy are saved and sometimes some of the reasons for saying that I think would not be reasons that I'd want to uphold. So there's the age of accountability yeah. argument. Uh, I don't think that's uh, 
and a, a watertight reason. But it does make me think, I wonder if there are other reasons, concrete biblical or theological considerations for some kind of a hope. Yes. And, you know, I want to, since you mentioned Spurgeon, I wonder what Spurgeon would say today of the abortion industry that we have now. Because mm. if we give this sort of blanket hope, blanket mm. salvation for children of unbelievers, then, well, Margaret Singer should be a Christian saint, pretty much. Because she has been one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the church. Yeah, it would, it would be a... It would be a a perverse way of reasoning, wouldn't it? Yes. And so I guess what, what I want to, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, so scripture is written principally to and for the covenant people of God. Yes. So, yeah. And then if we consider that, there's plenty of hope, especially for those who actually repent. Because, right, right. you know, we as Reformed, we are very quick to say, well, you know, one of the big purposes that God has in saving or not saving people is to reveal his character. Mm. And we would say, as especially as post-millennialists, but even if one is not post-mill and looks how God describes his character, be it in the Decalogue, be mm. it when he reveals his glory to Moses, God over and over and again and again emphasizes that he is the merciful God. He mm. is the gracious God. You know, in Micah, he says that it's his delight is to show mercy or to mm. show steadfast love. In Ezekiel 18, which is the passage where you know, God mentions that if the righteous turns away from his righteousness, he will surely die. But at the same time, he says, but if the, if the wicked turns and repents, he will not die. He'll be forgiven. Mm -hmm. And at the end, he says that he does not rejoice the he, of, the yes. of the death of the wicked. So we see that the God who reveals to us, mm -hmm. who reveals himself to us in scripture is a very, very gracious God. Just consider, you know, I mentioned the Decalogue. I want to explain what I mean. Because yes, yes. God says, well, I curse disobedience on the third and fourth generation mm. and we would wow that's that's pretty, that's, serious. That's pretty right. serious and then he says but i bless thousands of those mm. who love me and keep my commandments meaning probably in the context thousands of generations uh, uh, a thousand uh, generations yeah, just go to deuteronomy 7 and yeah. he explains that he means thousands of generations mm. so we see that god is way 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 more on the gracious side mm. of things and then we need to take this character of god that's revealed in scripture and yeah let's go to romans 9 let's yes. go to that most severe strict calvinistic passage and see okay god reveals yes. his character or in a and maybe the, the last passage in this context romans 11. Mm. you know paul's yes. argument in romans doesn't end with chapter 9 but paul goes on to Romans 11, and he says that God governs the world in such a way that he would have mercy on all. Mm. So we see this un, this incredible graciousness in, mm. in God and in what he is doing in the world. And these are some of the things, these are some of the principles that we need to apply when it comes to, yes, sovereign salvation yes. and sovereign grace. And, and the, the, the mercy of God is one of the things that one of the facets of God's character that came out so strongly mm -hmm. in your sermon. And so you could boil that down. You could say there's there's just an asymmetry mm -hmm. in how Scripture presents the wrath and mercy of God. Yes. Uh, in theological terms, this tracks back into the 
decree of mm -hmm. election and its counterpart, the decree of reprobation. But the decree of election and reprobation are not presented scripturally as a choice about which God doesn't care. You know, he just mm -hmm. drops some people in the, the golden bucket and some people in the black bucket and he shrugs his shoulders and walks away. You know, he 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 passes over those who are predestined towards judgment, but he acts yeah. in his mercy and in history to save actively those whom he has predestined for salvation. There's a, there's many points at which the 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 character of God. It's not that God isn't really wrathful. He is really wrathful. But Scripture doesn't present him as wrathful and merciful. There you are. There's there's historically as the character of God is unfolded, the emphasis falls so much more strongly on His grace and His kindness to undeserving people. Yes, the those who are condemned receive what they deserve mm -hmm. those who are saved receive the riches that of they don't God's deserve. grace and mercy that they definitely do not right, deserve right. another one of those asymmetries yes and it, and it maps onto another aspect of scriptural teaching about God that um, as a proverb says um, in the multitude of a people is the glory of a king or a prince mm -hmm. so you'd expect the greatest king to have the greatest number of subjects and moreover if you connect that with God's concern to manifest his glory in salvation, which we've just seen is asymmetrically greater mm -hmm. than his manifestation of his glory in judgment in terms of the numbers of people to whom it applies. If he's, if he's concerned to manifest his character by having as many people in his kingdom as kind of possible, quote unquote, and to do so in many different ways, well, you'd expect him to think, well, here's one whole cluster of ways of showing kindness. I could show kindness by bringing to faith and life and new birth the unborn children of unbelievers. Like we know that children of unbelievers can be saved mm -hmm. because many of us are children of unbelievers. We know that's possible. We know that God can bring new birth and give infant faith to children before they're born, because we've seen yeah. that in Scripture, Psalm 22, uh, Luke 1. So why couldn't God combine those? There's, there's a whole mm -hmm. category of people in whom God could display his grace by saving them, these unborn children of mm -hmm. unbelievers who are lost. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important that faith is a gift. Mm. It's not something mm. that we make by ourselves it's something that god gives and he gives it sovereignly right. and thus we can actually have hope for mm -hmm. these children yes i want to raise just one more scriptural consideration and you did mention this in your sermon from psalm 68 if i just read it mm -hmm. grab my bible yes. here. um psalm 68 um speaks of god father of the fatherless and protector of widows is god in his holy habitation God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. That's Psalm 68, um, verses 5 and 6. Now, it's just fascinating. So this is talking not just about God's mercy as a, an abstract quality, mm -hmm. or even as one which has been manifested historically in lots of different ways. It's talking about a particular kind of thing that the Lord likes to do. Mm -hmm in showing mercy. He likes to be the father of the fatherless. He likes to be the protector of widows. He likes to settle the solitary in a home. He likes to lead out 
prisoners to prosperity. And just take a couple of those. Father of the fatherless. So if you think about the, the tragically deceased unborn child of an unbelieving couple, is there not a sense in which that child is a fatherless child? In a sense, there yeah. is. And who loves to be the father of fatherless children? Yeah, and in a way, this even more applies. And that's why I would have the hope there, but I would want to be stated very carefully. That's why I would have hope for the victims of abortion. Because who is more right. of an orphan than mm. the child whose parents killed them? Right, right, right. And that wouldn't make Margaret Sanger a hero any more than the butchers um, in the abortion clinics. Yes. But what it does do is tell us that God, he just he's looking around to try and find fatherless people, people whose fathers have abandoned their covenant obligations, whether by impregnating a woman and then just walking away mm. or by trying to persuade her to have an abortion or by even being married to her and this is not convenient for us because of whatever reason um well there's a fatherless child there's a father who's who's failed to step up and be a man and be a protector mm. and god looks around and he's like where are all the fatherless kids i love to be the father to them and so i think you're right in a sense that We've got this other argument. It's an additional consideration about God's character that he just loves to be the protector of those most vulnerable people who don't have fathers to protect them. Mm -hmm. And the children who are lost in infancy, either either who have unbelieving parents or whose parents actually take their children's lives in infancy through abortion, um, in different senses, obviously those are different scenarios. We're not making a moral equivalence there at all. Yeah. But... In the child who is aborted, father has abandoned his responsibilities in in most cases because most most unless obviously sometimes the father is protesting against that, but that's rare. Um, in a case where you've got an unbelieving father, there is an aspect of fatherhood that he's not providing, and never had an opportunity to provide by being converted later in life and mm -hmm. being a great father to his son or daughter. God loves to be that father. Mm -hmm. hmm. And again, you know, that's not the answer that scripture gives us, but these are the principles that we need to hold right. and they can definitely lead us towards hope, but we need to be careful in how we yes, present yes, it. Yes. And ultimately we have to admit God has not given us an absolutely clear answer, but we can have much hope. Yes. Uh, just as an aside, before we go on to the next question, I'm struck again by the the way in which you and we're trying to do this at all saints as well but the way in which you are modeling responsible nuanced careful pastoral theology right it is really easy to do clickbait theology it's really easy to do soundbite aphoristic one-liner theology and sometimes soundbites and clickbait and one-liners are right like the book of proverbs right? yes. <laughs> but uh, human proverbial aphorisms are wrong as often as they're right at the very best and for us all to learn like life is complicated right life is very complicated and the answers that scripture gives to these kinds of ethical questions are as complicated as life is and growth in maturity has this element of growth in wisdom where we need to just recognize and wrestle with the necessity of becoming thoughtful nuanced wise Christians, wise um, feeders on the word of God. And 
and to turn away from the kind of simplistic stuff that might be so tempting to, mm-hmm. to just grab at. Let me just jump to question two. You mentioned in your sermon, uh, you turned to 1 Corinthians 7 and Paul's argument there uh, about the sanctification of believing children. And maybe I should just grab the, grab the portion and You, you can and understand the sanctification of the unbelieving spouse. Yes, that's right. So so the Paul's argument, um, and maybe do you, do you want to recount Paul's argument here when he's talking about, he's talking about marriage and yes. leaving a, a, a husband or not and so on and so forth. Do you want to recount Paul's argument here? Well, you know, it's the it's the verse that we all pedo-baptists really like to use mm-hmm. because it Paul says that the children of believers are holy. They, yes, yeah. Paul says that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the by the believing spouse because you see your children are holy. Right, right. And we need to be very careful because we are used to going to this verse to prove, look, children belong in the covenant, children should be baptized. Mm-hmm. But that's actually not Paul's argument. Paul says, you see, Christians, as it is, your children are holy. He assumes that. He assumes that. It's the basis for Paul's argument. And from that, he then argues, and thus the unbelieving, thus you see basically that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse. Right. So this is in the context of uh, so 1 Corinthians 7, verse 13. If a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, the woman being a mm-hmm. Christian, and he consents to live with her, she shouldn't divorce him because that unbelieving husband is sanctified in the wife, literally, in tes gunakes, gunaki, because of his wife, in ter gunaki. Those of you who are Greek speakers will know what I'm getting at. Um, and so the question arises, okay, so Paul is assuming the children are sanctified because he says, well, otherwise they'd be holy. And we all agree that they're holy. So the husband must be as well. But our question says, whoa, hold on a second. <laughs> believing wife, unbelieving husband, sanctified by his believing wife. Mm-hmm. So does our paid baptist covenant theology, on the basis of which we baptize our children, does that commit us to the view that we believe that every unbelieving spouse of a believing person is sanctified how does that work what what you can see the force of the question yes, sure absolutely so now the answer to that is no <laughs> so but let's just work through the whys and wherefores of this and and what's in what's in the background that again it's the nuance that clarifies the yeah. answer to this question. Go ahead. Yeah, we need to realize the, the pastoral issue that Paul is addressing here. Mm-hmm. Paul is basically addressing, okay, so, but my husband is an unbeliever. Basically, if I paraphrase it a little, will he not make our child unclean? And Paul says, well, no, don't worry. Your unbelieving spouse will not make your whole house and your whole family unclean. Mm-hmm. Now it works the other way. Right, right. So under the old covenant, under the old ceremonial system, we see that that which is contagious is impurity. So if you touch something, if you touch somebody that's unclean, right. you got... body or, or yeah. some kind of yeah, carrion or something. Yeah. Yes, you got unclean and you need to wait and you must be careful not to touch other people. Otherwise, you know, mm. the contagion spreads. But we see that this is... Uh, reversed under the new covenant so we see that when the lord jesus touches people who are lepers he doesn't get leprosy they got 
healed. Yes. When he touches those who are unclean, he doesn't get unclean, they got clean. In a way, we can see the same principle that we see in Romans 5. In mm. Romans 5, we have the comparison between the first Adam and the last Adam. Yeah. And first Adam, he messed up everything, but then we are told that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Right, so right. what the old Adam, the first Adam, messed up what he destroyed the lord jesus coming way 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 more to heal mm. and to reveal god's healing and glorifying grace there right. and this is the same principle that works when it comes to this issue of quote-unquote uncleanness we now know that we are bringing holiness we are bringing mm. healing into the world as a people so that's what paul is dealing with mm. there in the text yes. Yes. and of course this sanctification this healing yes, happens this through means okay. Right. So, so that's the other thing. In one sense, what you've said so far is um, that that's right, and it's very, very obvious when when Jesus touches the leper and he says, "Right now, go show yourself to the priest." It's like he'll know what's happened. <laughs> he'll yeah. be like, well, "Didn't you touch somebody?" Well, they're unclean now, and he's like, "No, no, I used to have leprosy. the The uncleanness now doesn't spread. It's holiness that spreads." Um, so. That, in a sense, makes the problem worse because not only is it the case that, let's say, a Christian woman married to an unbeliever who has Christian children, not only is it the case that, so to speak, her holiness in Christ is contagious so that the children are heirs of those promises, isn't it the case then that the holiness that she has in Christ is contagious, contagious and her husband somehow must catch it? And you just started answering that question because it's about the means god uses what expand on that for us well just like in everything god uses means and one of the you know central means that god uses in this world is the church as the covenant people and and we need to realize that if we realize that we and you know that's this is a way broader question if we realize yes. we as the church are body of christ we are the instrument we are the means of course together with the holy spirit who dwells in our midst that god uses to bring the work of christ to bear in this world you know, that will give us and that's what paul is getting at this will give us a whole new hmm. way of thinking we are not supposed to be running away from pagans so that we don't get unclean right, we're right, supposed right. to be going to them and bringing christ bringing the gospel bringing the healing and the holiness that we have in christ so that it spreads throughout the world and of course there are, you know, means this happens, that's prayer, that's evangelism, that's just basic Christian obedience. In the case of the of the wife, that would be respecting her husband. That's what Peter tells us. So our day-to-day -day mm. obedience, our day-to-day -day willingness to obey Christ no matter what the cost, that is the fundamental means that God uses as means of sanctification of you can right, say right. not only the family but of the society of the and the world as, well. as such and yeah, i'd want to say that about the children as well as the unbelieving mm -hmm. spouse and so to add to the list of means that you're pointing to it's the growth in knowledge and understanding and the profession of faith of those children mm -hmm. those are in a sense means or, or at least they are occasions and they accompany the work of Christ. They're the consequence of the work of Christ in the child's life. So we, let's just stick with the children for a second. Um, I would never want parents of a 
child, even if they're both Christian parents of a child, to think, well, we've got a child, but First Corinthians 7 says a child is sanctified. Our job is finished. Yes. Done. And if our child never professes faith and we never teach him anything and we never pray with him or for him, it doesn't matter because they're, he's sanctified. They're sanctified. Yeah. Right? It's like, no, no. <laughs> the point is that God's sanctifying work in history employs the means that he's designated for that work to be accomplished in history and so it that includes the prayer and the discipleship and the education and the nurture and the discipline and the love that you both want to show to the child and then see the child respond to and it is tragically true that some kids of covenant families grow up and don't profess faith and sometimes you can see the failure of the means mm -hmm in the parenting let's just cut to the chase it's a painful thing to say but it's transparently true um and so also it is with the, the husband it's there is by no means some kind of cast iron guarantee that this sanctification works out in history because it requires those means both of all the things you've pointed to in in, yeah. in this case it's the wife's believing wife's disposition but also in the husband so god's promises are not undermined by the faithlessness of some people yes. to whom the promise was made conditional upon their faith. Exactly. And that's what I would want to follow up a little, because you mentioned, well, some of the children who are who originally mm. come from covenant families, they don't become believers when they're adult, or they don't, yes. Yes. I would be better to say, they don't remain believers. They yes, don't, they, they from the they don't stay in the covenant. Yeah. Which, you know, we you've already mentioned the case of Absalom, but it's not that the children were never in the covenant it's not that mm. they didn't have a good start yes, yes. is that they were never taught and never internalized who they really mm. were in the covenant until they were cut out yes i wonder if there's a sense as well in which you'd want to say this is a christian home mm -hmm. it's a it's a sanctified home yes. even on account of one parent which is quite remarkable given that it's the woman who's the believer in first corinthians 7 in the example paul gives um, so whatever we say rightly with Paul about the, the determinative role as the head of the household, whatever vocabulary you prefer to use, that the husband should have, uh, the living God turns out to be capable of sanctifying a home and the children born within it yes. on account of the faith of the mum, yep. even if the father is an unbeliever, a rebel, an apostate or whatever. Yes, and that is why the apostles could preach and why we should preach. You'll be saved, you and your household. household. Believe in the Lord and you'll be saved, you and your household. Yes, yes, yes. So this is a believing household. Then. Yeah. Okay, so we the, the third question. Um, and again, th all these questions are potentially painful for some people. Yes. And, and yet at the same time, they're exactly the kind of questions we want to handle as carefully as we can. And um, Excuse me. Sure. And that's why I would jump in. You know, we can do this podcast and that's nice. But if, you know, the, the listeners have these questions, mm. the first and foremost thing would be go to your pastor or go to a pastor that would see things similarly. If, you know, mm. you're in a little ruler Baptist church and there's no nobody around, I would still say, you know, get in touch with somebody. Touch who... with somebody. Yeah. So embodied community, in other words, yes. church community. Yes. Uh, we've had a number of conversations recently just on this tangent about um, the benefits, the potential benefits, and also the severe shortcomings of this kind of disembodied ministry. Mm -hmm. It's why I aim this podcast principally at All Saints people, yes. um, because I, in a sense, I don't think there's anywhere else I can aim it. Mm -hmm. I mean, and if people are listening in, you're listening into how we try and do things here. 
And I hope you find it beneficial, but I hope you find it beneficial within the context of a great local church that you love and and you're taking this stuff to your pastor and your elders and so on. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a discussion for another day. Yeah. This third question, um, we are blessed here with one or two kids in the congregation and, and other churches uh, will typically be blessed with a number of people in the congregation who are either children or adults with some kind of mental impairment. Yes. Uh, perhaps a child with Down syndrome, uh, perhaps a child with severe autism, uh, perhaps an adult. Mm -hmm. Back in London, we had a, a, a lovely lady who was in her 50s who has Down syndrome uh, or some other kind of mental impairment at the end of people's lives, uh, dementia. Mm -hmm. uh, all of these things have in common that they make it less likely or even impossible that these people who are in our families and in our church community are going to express their faith in Christ in the kind of way that we're used to and the kind of way that we rightly look for in people who whose cognitive abilities are unimpaired. Mm -hmm. We look in our teenagers for you know, an increasingly clear-headed profession of faith, ability to articulate what they believe, a desire to read the word and certain uh, ways of showing godliness somebody who has a mental handicap of some kind just is less likely to display those kind of fruits because of natural impediments mm -hmm. so um can you speak to that what what should we think about god's promises of salvation in relation to those children in our churches yes now, i'm really glad that you spoke about this expression of faith the way you did because mm. you know we can go to the reformation catechisms and the confessions of faith and they express or describe what saving faith looks like or should look like in a normal person yeah. and in intimidating detail yes <laughs> and we need to make sure we don't then go and re try to read that back into the people that especially these but just generally right, we need to be right. very careful that we don't take these intimidating, you know, <laughs> list of things, you list of do. things and want to see every single one of them in every single one of our people. Yes. And in this context, and this, you know, relates even to uh, the issue of the faith of preborn children. Mm. Mm. And in this context, and because we tend to think about it way more on the intellectual level and or psychological level, because there'll be people who tell you, well, you know, until the child is, you know, seven or eight years old, he can't really grasp abstract concepts or whatever. Mm. But that's, Psalms tell us, tell us it's just not the case. And when we, let, let's think about the Lord Jesus, okay? Mm. So when he was in his bodily form, when he had four cells, mm. Mm. did he perfectly trust his father, yes or no? Mm. And if we say no, well, then we have some problem here because yeah, yeah. then we don't have a savior. But if we say that the Lord Jesus, when he was in the womb, when he was just implanting, was already perfectly trusting his father, mm. well, then we have an answer that, okay, what the scripture tells us faith is, and because it's a gift of God, it's not, it's not a meal. It's not that I take, you know, fiducia and a census and I put them together and then mm -hmm. I, you know, cook for faith my for myself and then yeah. i have it it's something that god gives and he, we should we see in the scripture he gives it 
to children in their mother's wombs, mm. we know that the Lord Jesus had it from the very beginning of his life. Mm. And therefore, it, faith is a God-given gift. It's not a psychological phenomenon. Right, right. And therefore, and that's the answer. That's why we don't really have to, you know, look at people mm. who have dementia or people who have, you know, autism. Yes. We can look at the Lord Jesus in the womb and have the answer right there. Right. Because, because the, let's, let's spell it out though, the, what we mean by faith, quote unquote, in any individual is conditioned upon who that individual is. Mm -hmm. So there is something which we ought properly to call faith, which can be the faith of a, an embryo. Yes. Otherwise, Jesus didn't have it. And most of our definitions of faith presuppose mature, cognitively sentient adulthood. And the definitions work mostly fine for mature mm -hmm. adults yep. but they don't work great for eight-year-olds or 14 year olds sometimes they certainly don't work well for two-year-olds or children with down syndrome or people with dementia in their later years so the thing we must do is to broaden our definition of faith mm -hmm. and if we do that just make it explicit for us do the covenant promises still apply to these children even when like they actually some of them are going to do things which if uh, a child who was functioning normally did them we'd think, okay, that's just rebellious. Yeah, But the promises still apply? They're still saved? Spell it out for us, Pastor Jan. Well, you know, do you happen to be rebellious sometime? Yeah. <laughs> Thank we, you. We, <laughs> you know, oh, so this is a child with Down syndrome and they sinned. Oh, wow. Right. right. So, we, you know, our God is not a machine. Our mm. God is a personal God who knows each one of us way better mm. than we know ourselves. And he knows the situation of those children. And I would say, well, if you have a Down syndrome child, well, it'd be very difficult for them to deny the faith knowingly. Like, <laughs> yes. So, yeah. uh, no. The, the, how could they not be heirs of the covenant promises? Yes. How could they not be? So the promises absolutely hold because they're given by God's covenant, mm. not by our intellect. Yes, so, yes. yes, the promises are absolutely there. Uh, we have, and actually with we have less reason to question them with mm. children who are more on the simple side of things yes, yes. than anybody else. Because, you know, I can be actually a false teacher right now. I can be a false believer. You have no clue because I'm pretty smart compared right. to an autistic child. I can pretend well right. being a believer. They can't. And thus, we should be all the more hopeful and mm. all the more trusting with whatever good yes. fruit we see yes. in their life. Yes. I mean, it's interesting because um, to, to let's take a, a slightly different example, but one we mentioned already, um, the, the all too painful and f frequent example of a, an elderly relative who mm. uh, becomes more forgetful and perhaps less emotionally restrained in his or her later years because of dementia of one kind or another or any other number of different things. Mm -hmm. um, we are in danger of taking very seriously an angry outburst from them mm -hmm. when we would never take seriously other things that they said. Like if they, if they said, I've decided that I want to go and be a missionary in the Congo, we wouldn't take that seriously. You know, you're 84 years old, dear. Yes. Um, and you can't go to the Congo to be a missionary because you're not allowed on a plane. Um, so let's go for a walk and then we'll come back and have supper. You wouldn't take them seriously when they say things like that. Yes. 
So why would we take them seriously when we know that they are struggling in ways they don't understand mm -hmm. to, to think with clarity? And we, t we, don't, we take them seriously because they have an ang angry outburst. Maybe they swear at us. We think, well, maybe she's not a believer anymore. Give me a break. She's, she's, just, she's doing something that we shouldn't be taking with that seriousness because we know that um, in the final years of his or her life, you know, that not everything is operating as it once mm. did. Um, I want to just speak to the, the point you made about faith. I think this is something, maybe we'll close on this. You, your description of faith as a gift, I think is, I mean, it's just straight out of Ephesians 2. Um, but it's profoundly helpful because it guards us against this idea that faith is a particular kind of cognitive volitional action. Yes. Now, the difficulty is faith entails certain kinds of cognitive volitional actions, but it's not normatively the, right. Norm, normally, right, mm -hmm. and and or it entails those actions in ways which are conditioned upon the identity of the subject. Mm -hmm. So it's going to look different in everybody. And as we said already, people who have mental impairments of one kind or another, it look particularly different in them. Faith entails actions normatively. But faith is not to be identified with those actions. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, in his dissertation on justification by faith alone, clarifies that what we should be thinking of by faith is simply our relationship with Christ. He calls it union with Christ. He's mm -hmm. one of the earlier people to call it union with Christ. And he, he puts it in sort of scare quotes, not literal scare quotes, but he, he, he's conscious that he's using a word that some people would be surprised by. And we go and read the dissertation on justification by faith alone. And his point is, what we call faith is just the way in which we relate to Jesus. Our relationship mm -hmm. with Christ or our union with him is a, a relationship that entails he is disposed towards us in certain ways and we are to be disposed towards him in certain ways. And the way that we're to be disposed towards him is faith. And who establishes that relationship? It's Christ who establishes mm -hmm. that relationship. He, he sees us, we're far off, and he goes outside the city to give himself to be reconciled to us so that he can, he sees us in our sin and draws us near to him. He, in other words, he's established the relationship. We experience that relationship as faith, the gift, but it's the relationship that's established by him. Yes. And, you know, we can sort of circle back to where, where we kind of started with the mm. character of God. Yeah. Again, when we have questions about our elderly relatives or children with mental impairment, remember the father in prodigal, mm -hmm. the parable of the prodigal son. If our God is the God who runs to us so that he can hold us in his arms, mm -hmm. why would we question mm. whether his promises still hold true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the answer is, well, because that sounds too good to be true. Yeah, That's yeah. And and because we're thick and we tend to imagine that God is a meanie. And, and, and as, yeah, as he's kind of sad. And yeah. anytime somebody says he's kind of sad. Yeah. As, as um, one of our fellow CREC pastors likes to say, we wrongly imagine that God doles out grace with a teaspoon. Mm. And it's more like a fire hose. Mm -hmm. All right. I think um, we should probably call a halt under this discussion. Yeah. It's been tremendously illuminating. You've been a, a blessing to our congregation. Um, I, I kind of wish you hadn't reduced so many of us to tears yesterday, but I'm kind of glad you did. It was a, a moving experience. I want to encourage you all, if you're listening to this and haven't heard that sermon, go back and listen to it again. It was rich and wonderful. I'm hoping 
that will be able to make the fruit of that and also this available in written form at some point because I think it's it's something that we need to get out there into our churches so that people can see how great a savior we have yes. and it, it's been a blessing to have you with us Jan we hope you'll come back um other year yeah, a lot of willing we'll, we'll do more of the same okay uh, I think that'll do us for now if you got this far well done made it to the end uh, if you think this would be helpful for other people please do like subscribe share do whatever you like with it but uh, if you're not in a church find one if you're all saints see you next week and God bless you all bye for now yeah. God bless